primary sermon text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Uh, this continues to be in the, the long section that 1 Peter has on just equipping Christians to suffer well, and so we'll look at more reasons that Peter gives us in these verses to suffer well. Uh, in particular, I think what Peter points us to this morning is a way that we can suffer well is by looking to that hope of resurrection that we have in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to read a few other texts that reflect that hope that we have, this hope for the age to come. And so uh, John will come up and read for us from 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 20, and the second half of verse 32, which just shows us how central the resurrection is to the lifestyle that we now live, that if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then we're all fools. So we want to read that from 1 Corinthians 15. Then we have uh, 1 Corinthians Uh, Chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, which Sadie will come and read for us. This reminds us how Christ has separated us from sinful practices and how if we're going to be followers of Christ, then we cannot go on living in sin. And then lastly, uh, Sam will come and read for us from Galatians 5, uh, verses 16 to 25, which remind us that the way of the Spirit is better than the way of the flesh. Again, there's these two alternatives that we have to live, either in the resurrection life that Jesus gives or in the dead life that the world gives. And so let's attend now to the uh, reading of God's word. Uh, So Pat, if you want to come on up and get us started. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. 1 Corinthians fifteen twelve through 20 and 32. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual, sexually immortal, nor idolaters, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. 
But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Galatians five sixteen through 25. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Well, as we turn to 1 Peter 4, 1-6 to this morning, we find what is, to me, a very interesting argument that Peter's making. Peter is making an argument for why Christians should be able to endure suffering, for how they should be able to endure suffering. So if you look at 1 Peter 4, verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Again, he's trying to equip these Christians to endure suffering, to go through suffering. Now again, this is not a new idea for Peter. Indeed, this idea goes back to the very beginning of his letter where he calls the people that he's writing to strangers, exiles, where they are. They've already been cast out of their homes. They're already part of this dispersion because of persecution. But more immediately, this call to endure suffering goes back to 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So that's what's happening here. The Christians are being spoken of as evildoers. I'm sure doubtless sometimes when they are being uh, oppressed in some way, when they are being put down in some way, I'm sure some of the Christians fell into sin every now and then and lashed back out with their tongue or in some other way. So they're not perfectly innocent, I'm sure. But by and large, the Christians are trying to live for Christ. They're trying to model Christ-like behavior. And when people say ugly things about them, when people don't like them, they're trying to return it with kindness. And even though they're returning it with kindness, people are still speaking of them as evildoers. And so they are suffering in this way. And Peter and the rest of the New Testament seems to take it for granted that this is simply going to be the Christian's experience in this world. Because we do live according to a different God, according to a different set of rules than the gods and the set of rules that the world lives according to, because we do that, we're going to face suffering. We're going to face opposition. Now, again, as I said last week, I think that Peter's words for sufferers here don't only apply to the opposition that we face, to the suffering we face when we're trying to present Christ or live as Christians in the public square. I think it also applies to the suffering that we may experience when we 
have to go to the hospital, or when we recognize brokenness in our family, or any other kind of suffering we may experience, I think the words about suffering do apply to that situation. But I know for me personally, the way I find these words most strengthening or most important is that they encourage me to take more risks for Jesus Christ. Because I realize that I'm not suffering a great deal in my life today, right? I haven't had to take an emergency trip to the hospital lately. I don't have a huge issue in my family. I don't have any kind of chronic illness. And so I come to passages like this that speak about how to endure suffering. And I think, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm not really wrestling with suffering right now. And yet the call that I see all throughout First Peter, and again, across the New Testament, is that, you know what, if you're not experiencing any suffering right now, then probably the first step you need to take is just to show a little more boldness. Speak a little more freely about your love for Jesus Christ, about how you want to follow after him. And I believe that it is the case that if we speak more freely, if we're a little more open, a little more bold in terms of how we talk about Jesus Christ with others, then for those of us especially who are not dealing with significant suffering right now, we're going to find that suffering real quick. And so let the words of Peter here embolden you, make you strong for that kind of suffering. And again, if you feel like you're not ready to enter into that kind of suffering, well then let the words of First Peter here tell you that you need to be willing to enter that kind of suffering because that's what it means to be a follower of Christ. It means to be willing to enter into suffering. As verse 1 says, Therefore Christ suffered in your flesh. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So if you're here this morning and you're a believer in Jesus, you want to be someone who follows after Jesus, you have this command to arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, the same way of thinking that Christ Jesus had. And Christ Jesus, as we all know, endured more suffering than anyone in this room is going to experience. I promise you that. When we think of the passion of Jesus Christ, all that happened to him during Holy Week, the mocking, the beating, the thorn of the, the crown of thorns, the cross, everything that he went through, he knew suffering and he walked through suffering. And he had a certain mindset about him. He had a certain way of thinking about him that led him to endure that suffering. And so what Peter is saying here is he's saying, remember how Jesus Christ himself suffered in the flesh? And if you remember how Jesus Christ suffered in the flesh, then what you can do is you can arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now, before we look at that way of thinking that Peter is encouraging us to have, just consider that maybe unusual phrase there in verse 1. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Have you ever thought of a way of thinking or of thoughts as armaments? Have, have you ever thought that by the way you think, you are actually arming yourself? It's like having a weapon, right? That's what arm yourself means. It's like you have a weapon, you're ready to fight. And what Peter is saying here is that if we as believers are going to be ready for the suffering that we face in the world, again, whether it's the suffering of persecution or whether it's just the suffering that we encounter as being part of the fallen world, if we are going to be ready for that suffering, then we need to be armed. <laughs> we need to be equipped. And how are we equipped as Christians? Well, not with guns or swords or things like that. That's not what prepares us for suffering. No, it is a way of thinking. When we arm ourselves as the way of thinking, then we are prepared to suffer. Now, there are other synonyms, I think, in the New Testament for way of thinking. Probably the one that's most often used is faith. 
right? Faith is a way of thinking. It is holding certain beliefs in your head and not letting them go and not doubting them. That's what faith is, is is having thoughts that you are holding on to. And so that's a way of thinking. And so Peter is just using another form of words here to say, have faith, believe in certain things. And when you believe in certain things, when you have certain thoughts, then you are equipped for suffering. You are armed for suffering. Now, what is the thought that we are supposed to have in order for us to be prepared for suffering? Well, that's what the rest of 1 Peter 4, 1 to 6 is going to talk to us about. So let's read it all together one time, and then we'll try to put together Peter's argument. So the first thing he says is, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, this is the foundation of his argument. This is the most important part that you have to understand. That if you want to be ready to endure suffering, to engage suffering, then you need to recognize what suffering does in your life. And what does suffering do in your life? As Peter says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So the fundamental thing that suffering does in your life is it cuts you off from sin. It, it weakens your desire for sin. It makes you able to resist sin. Suffering, everything that suffering does in your life makes you more equipped to oppose sin. Okay, so this, again, is the foundation of Peter's argument. The big reason, in Peter's mind, why Christians should embrace suffering, should be able to endure suffering, is because when we go through suffering, we sin less. And we want to sin less. And if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a believer, then that should be really appealing to you. Like, you mean I could be free from sin? I could be, I could cease from sin? I I don't have to sin anymore? That should make Christians want to say, well, then give me suffering. Because if I can suffer and cease from sin, well, then that's a really great thing about suffering. Okay, so that, that's, that's a rock bottom. But everything that Peter says after that is building on this thought that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So let's keep going. So is to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, just notice the dichotomy that Peter gives there. Either you can live for human passions or you can live for the will of God. He says, so as to live for the rest of time, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And for Peter, these are loaded phrases, right? He's intentionally using pejorative language, belittling language for human passions. And he's intentionally using exalted language for the will of God. So it's like he's saying, what do you want to live for? Fickleness, just going after whatever people go after, human passions. Is that what you want to live for? Or do you want to live for the will of God? You know, Almighty God, who reigns in pure light. You could live in his will, or you could live for the passions of the flesh. Okay, so he's introducing this dichotomy. Again, suffering in the flesh, ceased from sin. Same idea, but he's building on it. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For... The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. 
Notice that phrase, they malign you. So he's again pointing to the persecution, the opposition that Christians are facing. They're being maligned because they don't join in these practices that the rest of the world joins in. So Christians are not joining in, going on to verse 5, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So here he's introducing a second element to his argument, and that is the future-looking element. The fact that someday an account will be demanded of all human beings, living and dead. And we will give an account for what we do in this life. So if we practice evil deeds, we will give an account for the evil that we've done. If we've done righteous deeds, then we will give an account for the righteous deeds that we have done, and God will reward each person according to his works. And so this is a reality that is just part of the backdrop, part of the fabric of the world that we live in. And then Peter gives a reassurance to his Christian audience in verse 6. He says, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Now I think when Peter says in verse 6 that the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, it's not speaking of the gospel being preached to dead people, right? to people who are now in the grave. I think it's talking about the gospel has been preached to people who are now dead. So they have heard the gospel, they have believed the gospel, and they are now dead. And then what does Peter say about them? That though judged in the flesh the way people are, what does that mean? It means they die. That's the way that, that's the way that people are judged in the flesh. They suffer death. They die. Even though they have died, so even though they've been judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So this is the new life that they have. Even though they're dead, they're alive. They live in the spirit the way God does. And notice the parallel there, that live in the spirit the way God does with his phrase in verse 2. But you live for the will of God. So what Peter's trying to say, the, the picture that he's trying to paint, is that there are basically two ways of living. There's a way of living according to the passions of the flesh. In verse 3, he lists out all the various fleshly ways of living, the temptations that human beings can fall to. That's one way of living. Or there's a second way of living. And that second way of living is to live for the will of God. It's to live in the Spirit the way God does. And so in every human heart, in human beings, there is this division between flesh and spirit. Scripture also calls it old man, new man. If you're saved, you have a new man. And that means each of us has to make a choice on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment basis, of who are we going to listen to? Are we going to listen to the flesh, the old man, Or are we going to listen to the Spirit, the new man? And how we decide that, who we listen to on a day-to-day basis, on a moment-by-moment basis, is going to determine both the quality of our lives today and the quality of our lives for all eternity. 
Because we can live in the flesh today and we can enjoy all the passions of the flesh. Again, all those passions that are listed in verse 3, what Peter calls a flood of debauchery. We can live that life. And there's a lot of pleasure in it, I'm sure. But ultimately, the judgment comes. And ultimately, those pleasures are very small. They're passions of the human flesh. They are short-lived. They are meager. Or we can live in a new way. We can live according to the will of God. We can live in the Spirit the way God does. You see, Peter's already introduced earlier in his letter that living a righteous life is sharing in the very character of God. So in 1 Peter 1, verses 14 to 16, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Beloved, when we live in the Spirit the way God does, when we don't live according to the flesh, we share in the very character, the very nature of God. We share in God's holiness. God alone has holiness in himself. We don't have any holiness in ourselves. We, by our nature, because of the fall, are dirty creatures with nothing good in us. And yet God, when he invites us to a life of holiness, a life of righteousness, he's saying, come and share in my very nature. Share in my very being. Know the life that I have in me, the life of the Spirit. You see, we must get in our heads the beauty of a life with God as opposed to the ugliness of a life lived in sin. And it must pervade every thought that we have about sin and about God. No matter how small the sin is, we must understand how ugly that is. And no matter how small the act of obedience may be, we must understand how lovely and how life-giving that is. There is this basic dichotomy in the Christian faith. And in all the world, there is this dichotomy. Now, it's also absolutely critical for us to see how the Lord Jesus Christ, how his suffering, death, and resurrection fits into this choice that we have between following the passions of the flesh or following the will of God. You see, what was fundamentally true about all mankind before Jesus came into the world is that we were entrapped We were slaves to the passions of the flesh. Even if people wanted to escape the passions of the flesh and try to live in a new and better way, they were unable to. Now, there certainly were better people and worse people, but the better people were simply better at leveraging better idols against the worse idols that the worse people had. There was this captivity that people had that they could not live for the will of God. And the judgment that Peter talks of In 1 Peter 4, verse 5, that giving an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, all of humanity was about to fall under the acts of God in judgment. Romans 1 tells us about this, that all the world knew the difference between right and wrong. And yet all the world consistently chose the wrong. Again, not so much because it was what they were always craving or it was their own willful choice, although it certainly was that. 
but because there was just this reality of slavery to sin in the world. There was this slavery to idolatry in the world. And so when this thought of judgment came upon them, they had to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. As Romans 1 says, they couldn't believe that a judgment was coming. Because if they believed that the judgment was coming, then they truly were without hope. Then they just lived lives in terror. And beloved, to anyone who is here this morning, who is living a life just according to the passions of the flesh, you're just living for the pleasure of today, know that that judgment is still coming. And you should be very scared of it because all of us will give an account for the works that we do in the flesh. And yet here is the glorious difference that Jesus Christ made when he came into the world. This is why the cross is so central to every single day of our lives. When Jesus came, when he suffered, when he died, when he rose again, what he did is he broke the bondage that all humanity had to sin. He made it possible for us to be free from the power of sin and to live for righteousness. And what's more than that, not only did he break the power of sin, but he paid the penalty of sin. He paid the consequence that our sin deserved. So that now, if we believe in him, not only do we have freedom from sin's power, but when we look to that coming judgment, even though we recognize all the evil that we've done, all the wrong that we've done, and No, everyone in here, we have all done so many wicked things that we do not even recognize because our hearts have been so desensitized. All the wrong that we have done has been cast upon him. So that now when we look to the future, when we look to the judgment that is to come, we can have peace in our souls. Not because we ourselves have become great, not because we ourselves have become perfect, but because of what Christ Jesus himself has done. And so what this does for us is it helps us to come to this decision that we have to make every day where we're trying to choose. Do I live for the flesh or do I live for the spirit? Do I live according to the old man or do I live according to the new man? We come at this choice every day and whereas before Christ, we would have been utterly demoralized, right? Because we could even try to make a decision one day, no, I'm going to be good today. I'm going to do the right things today. All those right things still would have not have wiped out the past wrong actions that we had done. It still would have not freed us from the threat of coming judgment. And sure, we might even have a successful day where we're really good people, but we're still ultimately without hope, right? Because our evil actions are still there and there's still no escape from them and the judgment of God is still coming. And so in that case, why not just live for the world? As we read in 1 Corinthians 15, if the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There really is no hope. And so what the coming of Christ does, what he accomplished, is he opened up a totally new way of life to all of mankind. That no longer do we have to live without hope. No longer do we have to live in the passions of our flesh. No longer do we have to fear the coming judgment but rather through faith in Jesus Christ. Our eyes get opened to the opposite of all of those things. Suddenly, judgment itself, the future judgment, is not a threat, but it's an ultimate victory where those who do evil things, those who are oppressing the righteous, 
will be judged and the righteous will be vindicated. And so suddenly the coming judgment is something we look forward to. The, the way of righteous living, living for the will of God, living in the holiness of God, living in the spirit the way God does, no longer does that just seem like a hope that's out there that we can never attain. But rather, through Jesus Christ, because he himself suffered, and because he himself now lives in the Spirit at the right hand of God, that life in the Spirit, the life of righteousness and joy and freedom from sin and all these things, that life exists and is imparted to us by faith in Jesus Christ. So it's a real thing. It's there. It's not just a matter of our human efforts trying to get us there, but it's something that's been won, that is now offered to us from the hands of Christ Jesus himself. And that fear of death that we have, where we think, you know what, I'm never going to make up for all the wrong things that I've done. We can say, you know what, praise be to God, I don't have to make up for all the wrong things that I've done. Christ himself has taken all those wrong things that I've done upon himself, and now I can just live in joy. I can live in peace. I can live in freedom. So, beloved, when we see that new and living way that Jesus Christ has opened, can we start to see how this argument in 1 Peter 4 works? When Peter says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. You see, before Christ opens your eyes, you read that and it makes no sense whatsoever, right? You think, okay, on the one hand, I get suffering, which is miserable, And on the other hand, I cease from sin, which means I miss out on all the good things in life, right? So it's like a double whammy. You suffer and you don't get the good things in life, right? That's the way somebody thinks before they've seen the the beauty of the life that faith in Jesus Christ opens to them. But when you come to Jesus Christ, when you place your faith in him, when you see what the significance is of resurrection from the dead, of life in the spirit, of no fear of death, of eternal inheritance, imperishable, unfading, when you see the beauty of all those things, and then you come to 1 Peter 4, verse 1, and you read, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, your mind starts to think differently. And you start to think, really, that's, that's all I have to do? I just have to suffer in the flesh? And I can get all the beauty of this life in the Spirit, all these rewards that come through a life of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. When you see how much is in store, when you see the riches that Christ has to offer you by faith in Him, then suddenly that prospect of ceasing from sin, of no longer living in the passions of your flesh, it's no longer just like, a burden you have to bear, or something you have to strive for. Suddenly it's something you get to do. I get to no longer live in the passions of the flesh. I get to no longer sin. And then, when suffering comes into your life, again, whether it's the suffering of people hating you because you're a Christian, or whether it's suffering of going to the hospital, relationships, or anything like that, it turns suffering on its head, doesn't it? No longer is your first thought, oh, woe is me. Why is all this bad stuff happening to me? No, your first thought is, thank you, Lord. Thank you for granting the suffering in my life 
so that I could see how empty the world is. And so I could set my hope instead of on the things of the world, so I could set my hope instead upon this new way of life that Christ Jesus himself has opened to me. And so what it does is it totally undercuts complaining of any kind. Because suffering for the Christian is not a negative thing. Suffering never comes into our lives simply to harm us, simply to make us miserable, simply to punish us. This is not why God allows suffering into our lives. God is a loving and a good heavenly father. And when suffering comes into your life, he says, I have a good gift for you. I want to teach you the emptiness of your former way of living. I want to teach you the emptiness of this fallen world. The emptiness that this life right now has. And I want to introduce you to the glory of living for spiritual realities and spiritual joys. Yes, your suffering may be physical. Your suffering may be very real, very painful. Deeper than perhaps any other person knows And yet know that this suffering itself is preparing you for a new and better way of living. So, beloved, let us not be a people of complaining. Let us not be a people who, when we suffer, we think, why me? Or what wrong thing did I do? Or anything like that. God disciplines those whom he loves. He is not angry with you. He is simply training you, teaching you. I think, in a way, Peter states the same principle that he's giving us here in 1 Peter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as soldiers and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So again, this dichotomy, the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. What do you want to live for, beloved? You have to choose. You cannot live for the passions of the flesh and... The soul, the spirit, you either give up the passions of the flesh and you get more spiritual joy, or you embrace the passions of the flesh and you get less spiritual joy. They are opposed to one another. And the goodness of suffering, the benefit of suffering, is that it teaches us to give up those desires of the flesh. It teaches us that there's no hope in this world here below and that we can instead embrace the goodness that God has for us. And just to remind you, in closing of the beauty that Peter has for us, in the goodness of knowing God, Peter knows that even in this life, there is a remarkable pleasure to living for God. There is a remarkable delight that we can have in spiritual joys. So 1 Peter 1 verse 8 is one of the most powerful statements of delight in God in all the New Testament. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Beloved, this is what Peter is calling us to when he calls us to this life in the spirit, life lived in the will of God. Joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now, maybe you're also here this morning and you've lived for God a long time. And you feel like, you know what? I've never felt that joy inexpressible and filled with glory. 
I've never felt that real sense of love and longing, even though I don't see God. But beloved, let me just encourage you, don't give up on God. Then press in more, press in further. Spend more time in the Word of God. Spend more time in prayer. Spend more time living out risky acts of faith for God. And I promise you, the more you live for Him, the more you risk for Him, the more He will show up in your life, the more joy you will know. God does not fail on one of His promises. Or look at 1 Peter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Beloved, own your identity. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, own your identity as one who is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and even individually, as one who has been called out of darkness and into marvelous light. Beloved, I long for every one of you to taste the marvelous light of God, to see the marvelous light of God, to know that the marvelous light truly is marvelous, that is more marvelous than all the promises that the world can make, added up, stacked on top of each other. And that's why we can embrace suffering here and now. Because we have a marvelous light. Because we have joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. If you've never come to know this joy before this morning, then come this morning. If you've never given up some certain passion of the flesh before, give it up this morning. Live for the pleasures of knowing God. And you will never be disappointed. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we praise you that through Christ Jesus, you have opened up this new and living way to escape from the lusts of the flesh and to live a life that's devoted to you, that's living in your will, that's living in the Spirit the way that you do. God, I pray that you would open the the spiritual mouth of everyone in this room, God, that we would truly taste and see how good it is to live in the life that you have for us. And because of that, God, would suffering seem to be a small thing for us for the great reward that it brings about in our souls. I thank you for this people, God. I thank you for the work that you have already done in this people. And I pray for that work to continue and to abound. Lord, would you hear our prayers of intercession now, hear our prayers of confession now, as we as a people come to you in prayer.